I'm Avery Smith of the Rock Candy Podcast Network, and you're listening to Blessed Are the Binary Breakers, a multi-faith podcast of transgender stories. safe to say that the story of Jesus' birth is one of the best-known Bible stories. Even if you aren't Christian, if you've lived anywhere that Christianity is mainstream, you've probably seen your fair share of nativity scenes set up in front of churches or in a neighbor's yard. Some are pretty simple, just the figures of Mary and Joseph looking down at their baby in a manger. Others go all out with a stable built around these three figures and a bunch of animals with shepherds and wise men lining up to visit and an angel or a star set up high to look down at the scene. If you know the nativity story from pretty much anywhere, a children's storybook Bible or a church pageant or the Charlie Brown Christmas special, you know that when Mary gave birth to Jesus, she wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, a feeding trough for animals, because there was no room in the inn. That bit of the story is told in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 7, and from that little line, so much tradition has blossomed outward, with characters who don't show up in the Bible but do show up in our retellings. Like the innkeeper, who is either a cruel jerk or simply overwhelmed when he tells Joseph, sorry, no vacancy, but hey, there's my stable, your wife can give birth in there. The idea that Jesus was born in a stable, on the outskirts of Bethlehem, because the human world made no room for him, is one that I've cherished for much of my life, especially as someone who values liberationist readings of scripture, readings that pay attention to God's special care for the poorest and most marginalized, to how Jesus expresses his solidarity with those persons by becoming one of them. You don't get much more marginal than being born in a barn outside town, right? It's because I hold that traditional telling dear that it really threw me for a loop last year when an article I stumbled across on social media offered a different version of the story. It was just some article from The Guardian titled, Jesus was not born in a stable, says theologian. That theologian discussed is Reverend Ian Paul, who, the article tells us, argues that the Greek word kataluma, usually translated as in, was in fact used for a reception room in a private house. The same term is used to describe the upper room where Jesus and his disciples ate the Last Supper. An entirely different word, pandokeon, is used to describe an inn or any other place where strangers are welcomed. As I've done more research into the Greek, I've found that this article oversimplifies things a bit. I'll get into a more detailed dive a little later in this episode, along with a look at lots of cultural context that comes into play. But even with just this small segment of new information, I remember being rather rattled. It's always unsettling to realize that a reading of scripture that you took for granted could be incorrect let alone when it's a passage you've found vital to your own understanding of who God is in the world. However, 
As I've researched and prayerfully pondered various readings of the Nativity story, I've delighted to experience my original distress and trepidation transform into excitement and newfound meaning. This whole thing has helped me cultivate a deeper appreciation for the diversity of ways scripture can be interpreted, how a seemingly simple story holds unique significance for every individual or community that reads it. That is what I'm hoping to bring to all of you today, the chance to lean into that diversity, to challenge the idea that contradiction has to mean conflict. I'm going to take you through both more traditional tellings of the nativity that sets Jesus in a stable alongside the setting in a Bethlehem peasant home that is likely new to many of you, as it was to me. And I'm going to bring in poetry I've written this Advent because I can't help myself, so get ready for that. But first, a little ad from another show on the Rock Candy Podcast Network. Hey, I'm Andrew. And I'm John. Our show, Magnified Pod, is the only podcast that discusses culture, religion, politics, and deep dives into the discographies of the bands that shaped a generation of 90s youth group kids. Check out Magnified Pod on the Rock Candy Podcast Network and wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's begin by reading the nativity narrative found in the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 2, just to make sure that we are all on the same page. Before I read it, I ask you to pause a moment. Do your best to empty your mind of the story as you know it. Pretend you're hearing the tale of Jesus' birth for the first time. What is actually present in the text, as opposed to what you expect to find there? Let's go. Luke 2, verses 1-7. through 7. I'm reading from the New King James Version because it's similar to what most Christians tend to grow up hearing. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them, in the end. After this bit, the author of Luke goes on to talk about the shepherds who are alerted about this birth by a choir of angels. Then it fast forwards to Luke's circumcision at the temple in Jerusalem. The Gospel of Luke does not mention the magi, wise men, kings, scholars, whatever you want to call them, who come from the east to find the newborn king whose birth they see written in the stars. Only the Gospel of Matthew includes that part of the Nativity story. The different versions of the Nativity offered by the different Gospels is itself a topic worth exploring, but I'll let you do that on your own if you're interested. For now, let's keep to Luke 2's version. As you listened to me read, did you hear anything about a stable? No, just a manger, a feeding trough, right? 
which in my imagination at least certainly does conjure up a stable or barn around it. What about an innkeeper turning Mary and Joseph away? That wasn't there either. The only mention of inns at all was verse 7's comment that the reason Mary lays her baby in a manger is because there was no room for them in the inn. But if you remember, that Guardian article had something to say about the Greek of that word, traditionally translated as in. Let's check it out. The Greek word translated in here is kataluma. And besides its use here in Luke's nativity story, kataluma is only used two other times in the Gospels, or in the New Testament as a whole. Those two other uses are in Luke's and Matthew's accounts of how Jesus' disciples found a room for the meal that we now call the Last Supper. Here's Luke's account in chapter 22, verses 10 through 12. I'm reading from the NRSV this time. Listen, Jesus said to them, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house where he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs already furnished. Make preparations for us there. So here in, in this chapter in Luke, that Greek word katalama is translated as the guest room, not the inn. How can one Greek word mean both inn and guest room? The noun kataluma is tied to the verb kataluo, which means to loosen thoroughly. When journeying with pack animals, you'd only thoroughly loosen their straps and packs when stopping for a long rest. Thus the verb came to mean to take up lodging, and the related noun, the kataluma of both Luke 2.7 and Luke 22.10, came to stand for those lodgings, whether that was some natural shelter like a cave or a tent or an inn, or a guest room in someone's house. Meanwhile, there is another Greek word that means inn, specifically, and the author of Luke uses that word in his version of the Good Samaritan story, when a Samaritan brings a man mugged and left for dead to a pandokeion. That's the more specific word for an inn. So, if Luke's one other use of kataluma refers to a guest room in a private home, and the one time he wants to talk specifically about an inn, he uses a different Greek word, why do the vast majority of English translations of Luke 2.7 state that there is no room for Mary's labor in the inn, rather than in the guest room? Or, to keep things ambiguous, why don't most translations apply a broader phrase like, there was no room in the lodging place. To reiterate, it's certainly possible that kataluma refers to an inn when used in Luke 2.7, but it's not the only possibility, or even necessarily the most likely one. If Luke 2.7 is saying that there is no room in Bethlehem's inn, then the classic stable setting does make sense. However, some scholars question, one, whether Bethlehem being so small would even have had an inn or whether the duty of taking in strangers passing through instead fell upon individual families in the town. They also question, too, whether Joseph and his wife would have stayed in such an inn, even if it did exist. The reason that Joseph and Mary are journeying to Bethlehem is for a Roman census, for which all go to their own towns to be registered. In an article titled An Improbable Inn, 
A scholar named Andy Mickelson explains that Roman censuses typically required people to register not in their ancestral town, but wherever they owned property. Thus, we can conjecture that Joseph had traveled to Nazareth previously to seek work, or more likely to retrieve his fiancée Mary and bring her back to his native Bethlehem. To sum it all up, he says, Regardless of whether Joseph's family home was in Bethlehem or whether it was just his ancestral home, Joseph's ties to the village are key in determining how the Catalama of 2-7 should be understood. If Joseph truly was a native son of Bethlehem, then he almost certainly would have stayed with close family members. Bruce Molina remarks that Joseph would have been obligated to stay with family, not in a commercial inn. He also points out that if close family was not available, mention of Joseph's lineage would have resulted in immediate village recognition that he belonged, and space would have been made available. Thus, even if Joseph was only linked to Bethlehem through lineage, that lineage would have been enough to earn him the hospitality of a distant relative. So to sum that up, it's very possible Joseph himself has a house in Bethlehem, or that close family does. Even if not, his ancestry combined with the cultural focus on hospitality to strangers would have meant that someone in the village would have made room for him and Mary in their house. Finally, anticipating that we might say, okay, fine, Joseph was owed a place in a village home, but what if Bethlehem is just too full up of other travelers for that to happen? Mickelson adds this. Arguments that the homes of Bethlehem would have been filled to capacity due to the census disregard the simple fact that Roman registrations took place over a period, not a single day. Regardless, an added measure of hospitality could certainly have been expected due to Mary's pregnancy. So culturally, we can expect that Joseph and Mary would have been welcomed somewhere in Bethlehem that was better than a stable. When I was reading about all of this, I started to ponder how our usual tellings of the nativity that put Jesus' birth off in a barn, stable, or cave might run the risk of disregarding how central hospitality was in this time and place. When I imagine the people of Bethlehem failing to find proper accommodations for the pregnant Mary and her husband Joseph, I can't help but think of another city destroyed nearly 2,000 years before Jesus' birth, Sodom, which invoked God's wrath by replacing hospitality to strangers like Lot with attempted violence against them. See Genesis 19 for that full story. The people of Bethlehem may have been poor and oppressed, but hospitality was their way of sharing what they did have and practicing their devotion to the God who instructed them to care for the stranger all throughout the Torah. Hospitality was a vital virtue, not only for the Jewish people of this time and place, but for various other groups as well. In scripture, we find a Gentile widow sharing what she believes is her last meal with a stranger, the prophet Elijah, in 1 Kings chapter 17. Under the epithet Xenios, the Greek god Zeus embodied the moral obligation to provide strangers with hospitality. Likewise, the Romans viewed hospitality as the divine right of any guest and the divine duty of any host. 
I imagine that members of any of these cultures would have expected divine wrath to follow the failure of a whole village consigning a pregnant traveler to a lonely stable. No matter how poor, crowded, or busy Bethlehem was, I have come to doubt the presumption that not one of its residents took pity on Mary and Joseph and welcomed them in. So, let's say for now that we accept that Jesus wasn't born in a stable, but someone's house, likely the home of Joseph's relatives. In that case, there is still one more bit of cultural context we need to make sense of this new version of the story. No matter how we translate Kataluma, Luke 2.7 says that Mary laid Jesus in a manger. Why the heck would there be a manger, a feeding trough for livestock, inside of a house? Well, it turns out that mangers were totally something you would find inside first century Judean village houses. Rather than having a separate building for their livestock, families would typically keep their animals outside in their courtyard during the day, and then bring them inside their own homes at night. These houses would only have a couple rooms in them, so the same room in which the majority of human work and life took place during the day became the sleeping quarters for livestock, complete with mangers, at night. Here's a few descriptions of this arrangement, first from a scholar named Stephen Carlson. Typically, the main room was divided into two sections at different elevations, separated by about a meter. The animals were housed in the lower section, the people slept in the upper section, and mangers were located between them. Then our guy Mickelson explains further, Levant homes had followed this practical arrangement since the Iron Age. One space for livestock and humans kept the animals safe from theft, plus all that body heat kept everyone warm in colder months. A peasant house would usually have one more room, either to the side of that big main room or else up on the roof, the kataluma. That is where the guests would be fed, entertained, and where they would sleep. Alternatively, if a son went and got married and brought his wife home to live with his parents, the new couple would often get the Katalama as their own private room in the home. The Katalama in that Jerusalem house that we read about in Luke 22 before, where Jesus and his disciples celebrate the Last Supper, was notably large. Luke further describes it as a large upper room, or big room upstairs. Meanwhile, in Little Bethlehem, a home's Katalama was probably a lot smaller, too small to hold a large number of visitors. That's one reason why Luke notes in 2.7 that there was no room for them in the Kataluma. As Mickelson puts it, Luke records Mary as placing Jesus in a manger because there was no space for them in the Kataluma. There are two plausible reasons for this. First, the guest room might have been taken by other guests requiring Joseph and Mary to stay somewhere else in the house. While the traditional image of Bethlehem teeming with visitors for the registration is an exaggeration, it is likely that if Joseph had come for the event, others, even members of his family, may have returned as well, and the guest room may have been occupied by someone else. Before I read Mickelson's second plausible reason for the birth taking place in the main room, I'll break up all this scholarship with the first of my poems. Imagine this version of the story with me. Mary is tired after journeying to Bethlehem, a little village she's never visited before, while pregnant. 
She's glad to be welcomed into her husband's family's home, but a little nervous about having to meet so many people, her new in-laws, while exhausted. She finds herself being settled not in the Catalama, like she and Joseph maybe planned, because it's already full up. Maybe the heads of the house tell them, we could move guests around if you two would like that more private room, but Mary shakes her head, just happy to have somewhere to rest. The straw is clean, the animals warm. This is fine. Here is my poem that takes a sort of lighthearted look at this idea. The in-laws you acquaint yourself with first upon arrival in your husband's home are in-laws hen and cow. As other travelers recline upstairs on the best of this household's cushions, you make do with straw that in-law goat keeps trying to snatch out from under you. You hardly mind. These relatives are warm. Their smell obscures your smell, the sweat and dirt of travel. They don't pester you with questions you have no energy to answer now. Your husband's sister, when she finds the time to sit a moment, takes your hand and beams. We almost thought he'd never find a wife, that maybe carpentry filled all his dreams. She winks, and Joseph huffs but smiles too. And now, well, look at you. One motion to your belly, then she's off to cater to the other guests aloft. Not long from now, you will take center stage. A gush of water like a parted sea crashing back down will call all hands to you. A little niece-in-law will be sent out into the night to call all women to your side. For now, though, you're content to fall asleep unnoticed by the rest of this household, splitting at the seams with family you've yet to meet. The rustling of hens drifts through your dreams, while in your belly, God kicks his new feet. The birth takes place in the main room of the house because the guest room is full up with guests, or maybe there's something else to Luke's comment that there was no room in the Cataluma. Not that it's full of other people, but that it's just too small for Mary's labor to take place as comfortably as possible. Here's the second half of Mickelson's reasoning about no room in the Cataluma now. The other possibility is that there was not sufficient space in the Catalama to accommodate Jesus' delivery. Childbirth in antiquity was a dangerous procedure for both mother and child, and it is likely that Mary would have been assisted by a midwife as well as the women of the house. The Catalama of the Last Supper was noted for being large, but these guest rooms likely varied in size. If the room in which Mary and Joseph were staying was small, Mary would have relocated to the main room of the house, where there would have been plenty of space for other women to help with her delivery. People who like to focus on how Luke's gospel centers women, read chapter 1, where Mary visits her cousin Elizabeth, and the two of them get to dialogue about what their pregnancies mean to them, will appreciate how this version of the story, where Mary is surrounded by village women headed by a midwife as she gives birth. Mary is not alone in a stable on the outskirts of town in this version, nor is she tucked away in a corner of the house where no one has to watch her give birth. She is right in the house's hub as she births the Son of God. And that's pretty great for a liberationist reading, after all. 
This setting fits the theme of Jesus' intimate identification with the marginalized and the oppressed, as it solidifies the everydayness of his arrival. As Mickelson puts it, this reading of Luke's infancy narrative makes the story of Jesus' birth even less unusual than the traditional reading of the story. Being rejected from an inn and being forced to give birth amid animals gives Jesus a humble yet noteworthy beginning. Jesus is born in desperate and memorable circumstances. But placing Jesus' delivery in the main room of a Bethlehemite home gives him a birth narrative similar to probably thousands of Jewish babies. Nothing about the circumstances is extraordinary. Being swaddled was a common experience for infants, and the most that can be inferred by being placed in a manger is that the home may have been crowded and there was nothing else approximating a crib available. In short, Luke portrays Jesus entering the world in a rather unremarkable way. Though the narratives surrounding the actual birth scene in Luke's gospel, full of angelic messages and praise songs from priests and shepherds, a teen girl and an old widow, make the importance of Jesus' arrival clear, for the actual moment of birth, Jesus is just one infant of thousands born in a typical peasant house. He really is just one of the poor, one of the common folk. Furthermore, rather than accepting the marginal space that is the only space imperial powers or any powers that be would allow him, Jesus makes the margins the center. It's my friend Laura who first put this idea in my head in a podcast episode they put out last December that I'll link in the show notes, titled, And a Tax Collector in a Fig Tree. In the episode, Laura first talks about the story of Zacchaeus that takes place way later in Jesus' life in Luke chapter 19. Jesus calls to a tax collector who would have been spurned by the Jewish people as a collaborator with the Roman Empire. Jesus calls, Zacchaeus, come down at once. I must stay in your home today. That's right. Jesus invites himself over to this guy's house. In doing so, we see how Jesus doesn't wait for us to invite him into our world. He bursts on in of his own accord. Laura parallels that story with the reading of the nativity story that sets it in a peasant home in the heart of Bethlehem. Our traditions put Jesus on the outskirts, alone in a barn, but Jesus makes himself comfortable right in the midst of a crowded house. This concept inspired me to write another poem, which I'll read for you now. We are more comfortable when you are tucked into your designated corner, but you were never one to stay put where you're told. From birth, you have been bold about breaking right into the thick of things, pinpointing the pulse of human happenings and blaring through with news of God's kingdom come. Into the cliffsides outside Bethlehem, we have constructed with our word and song a non-existent edifice, some banished barn along your hometown's outskirts, where you can be born, where no one has to hear your mother's groans, where Joseph midwives her, untrained, alone. Meanwhile, your wet head crests from a nest of straw built in the home's hot heart. Your mother gasps and grasps the hand of some old woman she just met tight enough to knit them into kin. 
just one wall over, rising from within the side room filled with other guests who've come to Bethlehem for Caesar's census, prayers are sung to secure your safe delivery. We like it better when you wait for us in remote places we can journey to when we are ready. We like the tale of shepherds, rich men too, who visit you forewarned what to expect by angels or by astral signs, but you burst into our bustling, compel us to make room in the chaos of the everyday. You will not sit outside and wait till we've tidied up the mundane mess we never seem to get to dealing with. You'll write your own invitation into our homes. You'll let yourself inside, draw up a chair at our tables, and preside. The night is here. The hour is now, though we've got half-baked plots and chores undone, ready or not, here you come. In any reading of the Nativity, whether it takes place on Bethlehem's outskirts or in its heart, Jesus is born to nobodies in a nowhere town. His parents are brown, Palestinian Jews living in subjugation to an empire. They are impoverished, and they are dependent on the hospitality of others who share their poverty and oppression. But while the most common tellings of the tale claim that appropriate hospitality was not extended to them, that all the people of Bethlehem effectively rejected Jesus' family, the versions that place his birth in a Bethlehemite house rather than a stable reverse that rejection. I find this meaningful in a few ways. First, we deflect any possibility of an anti-Semitic reading of the Nativity story that the Jews of Bethlehem rejected Jesus from his very birth by refusing his parents' space in their inns or homes. Instead, the Jewish Bethlehemites assist in his birth. In the same vein, I wonder, do we do a disservice to the poor whom liberationist theologies are supposed to center when we claim that the people of Bethlehem, from the innkeeper of our pageants to whatever relatives Joseph may have had there, fail to provide a pregnant teen and her husband with better accommodations than a barn? A reading that imagines village women supporting Mary through her labor that imagines the main room of a house given over for her use, is a reading that celebrates the generosity and hospitality often demonstrated by poor and oppressed persons. From birth and beyond, Jesus relied upon the solidarity and generosity of his fellow poor. And as a poem I'll read shortly says, the poor know how to serve one of their own. Indeed, we are coming near the end of our exploration of this new version of the Nativity story. New to us, at least. Various people have suggested it across the centuries, including one Francisco Sanchez de las Prosas, who in the 1500s argued that church paintings of the Nativity were incorrect because Mary gave birth not in a stable but in a private home, and who was reported to the Spanish Inquisition for his troubles. But that's a tangent. As we reach the end of this episode, I want to reiterate something about my purpose for it. Whether or not you are on board with this version of the Nativity story, 
I hope that, if nothing else, I've opened you up to the possibilities of scripture, the richness that can come from daring to reimagine stories we think we know by heart. The more familiar a story in scripture or elsewhere, the less likely we are to consider new ways of reading it. But just look at what is born when we step away from the familiar to explore what lies beyond, even if only for a moment. As we close, I'll share one last poem with you, but it requires a little introductory context. The poem is the product of several weeks of meditating on and really placing myself within multiple versions of the nativity. I did this meditation while praying a daily rosary. For those unfamiliar with this Catholic prayer tool, a rosary is a string of beads that kind of looks like a necklace as it loops around and joins at one point from which five more beads hang, ending with a cross or crucifix. You start your prayer at the crucifix and pray along the hanging part, called the pendant. Then you make your way around the five decades, or five clusters of ten beads each, Every decade involves 10 Hail Marys, as well as a few other prayers, including the Lord's Prayer or Our Father. For me, the rosary offers a way to embody my prayer and to enter into a meditative state as I move from bead to bead and to repeat the prayers. As an autistic person, having a tactile point into which to pour all my energy, one point of sensory input to overshadow all the others, is a powerful way to put aside all else and hone in on divinity. For the past couple weeks of Advent, I've been using my daily rosary to imagine the nativity over and over, a little different each decade. As I've done so, versions whose events contradict each other a painless Mary versus a groaning Mary, Mary alone or Mary with midwives, Mary dismissed to the outskirts or settled in the heart of a home, all found their place side by side along that line of beads. As I took time with each story, the sense of contradiction as conflict faded away. Little truths rose to the surface of each version something to savor, a fresh facet of the story of God entering into human life. I can't know which one was most historically accurate, but I could contemplate what each version says about God's movement in Mary's life and ours, what good news each version proclaims into our world. I'll close with this poem as I hope it encapsulates what this episode might have been for you a chance to ponder how these different readings of one story impact our understanding of how God moves among us and how they speak to each of us in slightly different ways that, when shared, can open each of us up to fresh glimpses of the divine. The poem is titled Nativity Beads, and like a rosary, it is divided into one pendant and then five decades, each with ten lines. Pendant. We think we know the story of how you birthed our God into our midst, but this is not quite accurate. The tale of your time in Bethlehem is overlaid by two millennia of retellings, tradition lining up beside tradition, and when my mind becomes a tangled mess trying to divine which ones really happened, you come. You calm. 
you guide me from my need to know one truth into the sacred splendor of a whole string of stories, each one a bead pregnant with its little piece of truth, a little link between me and your son and you. First Decade It's not so bad, Joseph says hopefully, as he helps you settle down into the straw. The cave walls cut the chill. The goat who ambles close to sniff you stinks, but oh, she's warm. You think of births you've overheard at home, the neighbor woman rushing in to help. You expected the same for yourself, but ah well, what has been expected about this pregnancy? Second, Joseph hovers fervent but unsure how to help. If I could take your pain upon myself, but there is no pain. Conceived as you were, free from Eve's bane, as you give birth to heaven on earth, all you know is bliss, bliss, bliss. Third, Joseph is gone. You can picture his desperate dash from door to bolted door off in the town as you lie alone on old straw and, God, the baby crowns with no one to help, so you reach down into the mess of your own blood and yours are the first hands to wrap around the Son of God, red and slick and, oh, sacred sound, screaming. Fourth, Joseph is gone, but near. You know he waits, pacing and praying just outside the door. In his place, women's faces, smiling and soothing, letting you squeeze their hands as hard as you need, or bustling about to heed midwife's decrees. The guest room was too small to hold this congregation, so you were helped into the central room to birth the Son of God right in the heart of this small peasant home. The poor know how to serve one of their own. Fifth, you close your eyes as agony subsides between contractions. See yourself as one bead upon a long, strong string stretching centuries. You are one with Jacobed biting down to mute her moaning, Rebecca grateful for an end to her rough pregnancy, with Hannah, Ruth, Bathsheba, Hagar, Rahab, Leah, Eve, and millions more unnamed. You share their groaning, their labor, their relief, their ecstasy. Your baby crowns, the women round burst out in glory be. 